you've really got to do a deep dive in your you know market that that research if you're new to your niche that you want to serve is imp- super important you know the ideal scenario is you're very 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 familiar with the niche market you want to serve start with something that you are incredibly knowledgeable about passionate about or willing to do a ton of research on or a good amount of research on to really understand the dynamics at play as a first principle which is you have to add value to the marketplace if you put a me too product out there even though it costs you a lot of sweat and time and money to put it out there you haven't added any value because you're just putting more of the same out there so you'll get paid the same which means no profit you're listening to ecomonics a debutify podcast your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age this is joseph I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Michael Vizi and Jason Miles marks the first time I had two guests on at the same time, and my gosh, do I want to do this again. The duo also hosts their own show, The E-Commerce Leader, and you can see for yourself how the two work together to better convey a point. Not that the theme of duality was intended by any means, but it's worth noting since this episode covers monopoly versus duopoly, as well as micro and macroeconomics. So yeah, I just thought it was cool to point that out. We also talk about first principles in e-commerce that, while we've been in the conversation for some time now, is worth visiting for the first time no matter when or where you're at. Okay, well, not when you're at, unless that does apply to you. I'm not your boss. Michael Beasy and Jason Miles. This is an Ecomonics first. I have two people... Uh, as guests on the program today. So this is exciting. How are you guys doing? How are you feeling today? We'll start with you, Michael. Feeling very well. Yes, thanks. Um, over in, for once, sunny London. And uh, really, really looking forward to deep diving into economic principles. Absolutely love this stuff. So looking forward to the show. Oh, man, I'm jealous. I'm in rainy Seattle. So I'm doing well uh, as well. So thanks for asking. I'm, I'm over here in uh, Toronto, Canada. We, have, uh, we had about five minutes of really nice weather. And uh, that's that's been sustaining us all the way through until the next five minutes we have in June. So, you know, it's it, it's enough. Uh, a little a little goes a long way up here in the in the Great White North. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like London weather, to be honest. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, uh, I this is this is a tangent, but I'll tell you uh, very very quickly. I worked for a, a watch company, and we sold uh, internationally, and a great deal of our customer base was in the UK. And so I would start my shift at 10 a.m. and you know the day was already part way through in the UK. So I would get calls from UK customers being like, "It's been five hours and I haven't got on my watch." And then we had other people who would call, and the the FedEx delivery driver put the, the took the package and he put it out by their porch. So I get a call saying, "You know, I live in London, right? It is raining all the time. My package is completely decimated." Pretty good work on the accent, by the way. Thanks. I've had yeah, I've had a lot of uh, a lot of practice on that. <laughs> and there goes my pen. So while I pick that up, why don't I start you guys off with the uh, the big economics traditional question, which is who you guys are and what you guys do. And this time we'll start with you, Jason. Sure. Um, uh, honored to be here, by the way. And uh, yeah, I've been selling online for, I guess, um, 13, 14 years now. Uh, we started on eBay. My wife and I did. It was a kitchen table enterprise. Uh, I was full-time nonprofit manager and it did a nonprofit management career for 20 years. Uh, as my full-time employment, we good? No, I was just, I was just remarking. Uh, Twenty years. That's. Uh, oh, I'm that, so that's sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, I, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm. I have a bit of a quirky career path. I, I, I'm very, very happy with this job right now. 
but I would need to pass the two-year threshold for it to be the longest job that I've held down at any point in my life. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm slow to stuff. So I did 20 years in nonprofit management, and my my wife and I built a e-commerce business uh, first on eBay, and then um, migrated it to ultimately Shopify in 2013. And um, it's called Pixie Fair. It's in the sewing niche. We have a marketplace basically uh, with uh, sewing patterns. We have a catalog of about 3,100 uh, products on our in our Shopify site. I think we're at 2.6 million transactions now uh, through our store and um, I had a great time doing it. I retired from my nine to five job uh, in 2014. And uh, then about three years ago, I started doing uh, coaching, consulting and, and uh, book writing, which is sort of my side hustle on on life. And uh, so that's me. Yeah. And Michael, uh, yourself? So I, uh, as you know, live in London, England. Um, uh, like yourself, I think have probably the maximum I've ever worked in a job was about two years until I, you know, did the whole e-commerce thing. So um, some people call that a serial entrepreneur. I think I was just kind of trying to find the right path, <laughs> I guess. Um, so I worked with six, seven and, and eight figure Amazon sellers who struggling to scale, um, particularly focused on sales related issues. So the easy wins optimization, which is surprisingly neglected, even though it kind of feels if you're in the midst of it, like everyone's perfect at it. In fact, implementing it at scale can be tricky. Um, and uh, the primary mechanism for that is deep focused mastermind. So really I'm focused on consulting these days. I have sold on Amazon. I, I have a little bit of a finger in the pies there. Um, I personally realized a while ago that, frankly, my passion is for business in the more abstract sense. Um, and whilst I keep my finger on the pulse by doing uh, daily management work for some clients on Amazon, that's really where my passion is, the strategic level, because I think it's just underused by uh, entrepreneurs. So that's my sort of focus and passion. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, uh, you wrote down uh, yeah, easy wins optimization, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna table that because that is something that I would like to uh, get your take on afterwards. But we have a really important subject that we wanted to make sure that we got to, and I want to know for a certain that when I'm uh, done this recording, that I've devoted as much time to it as is warranted by the context. If we have time afterwards, I also want to hear about how you guys got into uh, working on your program together. But we'll get to that. So. Here we go. Uh, we're going to talk about economics principles. I've been lucky to have quite a few conversations up to this point. And so my, my gut tells me that a lot of what we refer to as economics principles has been brought up, but I don't think it's been characterized in, in this particular way. Here's my, my, my first understanding of it. I think the more we connect to the fundamentals of commerce, especially when we compare it to the ever-evolving e-commerce marketplace, the better off we are. Because I think there's a lot of, a lot of allure to the digital side of things can happen very rapidly. And then all of a sudden, somebody can make a lot of money. And what they're missing are some of those key principles that people have to keep in mind just to run any good business, regardless of if it takes place online, or if you're mowing people's lawns, whatever the case is. So that's my first uh, initial understanding of economics principles. But I leave it to you now to, I guess, uh, uh, put me on the uh, align me on the correct path. So who wants to go first? I'm not sure who I should ask first about this. Jason, go ahead. All right, Jason, go for yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to just give the kickoff uh, overview of this. You know, it really started in my mind with watching some interviews that Elon Musk did about rockets and, you know, all of the amazing things he does. And he kept referring back to first principles. You know, he'd say this phrase like, you know, well, we, we want to take things all the way back to first principles. 
in engineering, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought to myself, man, it's so great that Elon Musk can have first principles in space rocket stuff. I wish there were some first principles in e-commerce. And I was like, wait, there have to be first principles in e-commerce. Like, what am I talking about? So I really just started this mind kind of, you know, this journey of what are the basis, you know, kind of core concepts uh, that we're all depending on as e-commerce sellers. And of course, it's not surprising when you think it through, it's microeconomics and psychology. And so Michael and I, for our podcast work, we just started making a, a list of uh, what we are calling e-commerce first principles, and then started devoting podcast episodes to them. And I don't know, we've done five or six or seven now, but the list of e-commerce first principles that we brainstormed together was like over 30 discrete topics. And um, and they're very fascinating when you go back and you look at, okay, what does the microeconomic literature talk about? And how do we apply that to our individual Shopify sites or Amazon accounts or you know, our, our online selling efforts. And so that was sort of the origin of the idea. I just want to add as a follow-up to that, uh, Jeff Bezos is uh, obviously got a physics degree and the richest two people in the world right now, your favorite person, Elon Musk, who I also have, you know, just to disclose, I have some shares in Tesla um, <laughs> in case, but that's not really why I'm saying it. And obviously sell on Amazon, so maybe I could be said to be biased, but the richest two people in the world have physics degrees. I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um they they talked about the triumph of the nerds back in in the sort of early two thousands, but I think it's only really just beginning to to really show up and the big level now. A couple of other things that make me think about first principles and how that ties in with Jeff Bezos and the genius that he's created with Amazon. Love or hate him, he is a genius operator. He had a ten year Wall Street investment background. He wasn't just mm-hmm. an operator; he was really really good. And I think that's another part of the first principles that he's applied to Amazon and that we need to apply as e commerce operators. And the final thing about Jeff Bezos, fascinating thing, is that he was sent to what a special school now. Normally in the UK, special needs means um, that you struggle. You have, you know, uh, you're behind the usual curve of, of educational development. He's actually, you know, was exceptionally gifted, and he was get put through a very special system. I believe the state school system or public schools, as you would say in the US. And one of the things that stuck from that is really being trained to think in a lateral but very first principles based way. So famously, people have jumped in a, you know, a car, a town car with Jeff Bezos to be sort of interviewed on the way to the headquarters, the S level people, and he'll say something like, "Quickly, how many manhole covers are in the USA?" And you've got two minutes to try and figure out a way to solve that kind of unsolvable problem. So I think that this this kind of thinking is is there at the top already, not just Elon Musk, but with Jeff Bezos as well. I'm going to uh, throw one more in to the uh, Jeff Bezos mix too, is that Amazon uh, took some time before it was profitable. I believe it actually uh, reported its first profit at in like 2014. Uh, it's been a while since I looked at that fact. So you have to imagine uh, this long-term thinking where he understands that this can't be profitable right away. He's going to have to continuously reinvest into the business until it, it gets to that profitability point. And even so, the, the margins of it aren't as, uh, uh, aren't as disparate as you might think. A lot of their ability to be successful is the fact that they, they don't have like... A, especially when you come to the products, the products themselves, you don't make too much money off of that, but you do start to make a lot more money once you start adding in uh, Mm. digital and you start adding in AWS. And so you can change the margins on that quite a bit. Yeah. I love that. Let me just mention before we move past this point, the idea of applying first principles thinking is very um, well, it's a well-worn path. So, you, you know, you can research how to do this, but the three principles involved in applying first principles thinking are identify your current assumptions about whatever you're working on for us. It's always our e-commerce selling and efforts and some specific aspect of it. Uh, And then the second principle is break down the problem into its fundamental principles, the most core concepts associated. 
And then the third uh, step is to create new solutions. And, and that's applying first principles thinking. Yeah, I would just encourage all the e-commerce sellers listening to the show to go down that path. Absolutely. Now, and Jason's, by the way, got a real knack for breaking the complex into the simple. And I, I think that's a, you know very good because I have a tendency to want to go down a rabbit hole and go into detail. So we balance each other out on the yeah, podcast. Totally. <laughs> just one thing I want to say about Jeff Bezos and the whole profit thing. Now, I am not a sophisticated Wall Street trained analyst, but my understanding of what made Amazon great is, I guess there's two things, one intangible, one very tangible, but kind of hidden if you look at it the wrong way, talking about identifying current assumptions. The assumption that profit drives value is normal for most businesses, right? Small or big. But the thing about Amazon is uh, Jeff Bezos says, first of all, he famously thinks in seven-year chunks where everyone else thinks about the last quarter. That's one of the things. The second genius he's had is to convince the Wall Street guys that they should keep investing in a, pro a company that keeps putting off profit for like 15 or 20 years, pretty much, which is just crazy. But the third thing is that I actually don't think it's run for profit. I think it's about cash flow. And their cash conversion mm -hmm. cycle is actually negative, meaning they get paid 14 days before they pay anyone else. I think that's really a piece of genius that everyone misses. The other genius, though, is this. When you get profit, you get taxed on that. When tax is your biggest expense, that slows down growth. And for a guy who's obsessed with growth and who was selling that explicitly to Wall Street, I think that's the key, that it was all about let's grow, 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 which is a kind of public, a PLC luxury that is a crazy obsession that doesn't work for a privately held business to go broke. Um, but secondly, how do you grow? Okay, you reinvest everything. How do you do that? Don't get taxed because it's your biggest expense. Apart from the way he's played the states off against each other for 20 years, mm -hmm. eventually they've applied sales tax, but that took him two decades. So there's a lot behind that single statement around the profit, in my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I I can imagine so. At least uh, at least one seven year chunk worth of it, if not more than that. Uh, so I did listen to uh, well, I thought it was uh, just two parts, but apparently there was more parts to it, and. Uh, it reminded me of something from my own personal experience that I think I can uh, I can apply here. So part of my 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 hobby uh, profile is that I do like playing games competitively, and I I mean I've been playing uh, video games since I was uh, very young. And when I started playing when I was very young, I was left to figure things out on my own, develop my own skills on my own. I didn't have the internet to have any guides or anything like that. And I would join the the game community, and a lot of the the younger players they initially they would have the internet to act as a guide so they can tell them here's some tricks uh tips here's combos here's stuff like that and what i noticed is my fundamentals were stronger i didn't understand a lot of um a lot of like the 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 particular strategies that people on the internet were coming up with but i understood things on a very uh core level and that and that to me i think has been something that i think might be missing when a lot of people get into e-commerce is that they don't start with the fundamentals. They just start with the the guide to reach success, and it doesn't occur to them why they're these things actually are successful. And I don't want to like point to any one particular uh, YouTube channel and saying they're they're forgetting to say the fundamentals. I would imagine, and for the most part, they do describe them, but they're not. They don't hone in on them. And so, what I want to hear is uh, your, your experience in this, and perhaps with your own. Um, e-commerce e e development is you know when at what point did the fundamentals uh, come in and or did the fundamentals come first or did you feel like you were the fundamentals came a little bit later yeah i mean i think it's a great question it's a great observation i think you're totally right that's how a lot of um online sellers do approach 
the exercises, they come into it with a sliver of understanding about how to execute on a, maybe a part of a business model or a business model. They get training. They hear about some amazing thing. We call those shiny objects, you know, like, oh, merch or uh, whatever it is, you know, retail arbitrage or whatever the, the new thing is they've heard about. Um, but, you know, when like when I work with coaching clients, um, one comes to my mind who uh, was just a grinder in their, their industry for 25, 30 years and uh, never made that much money. And then they develop a product associated for, you know, with their, with what they did for their industry. And they are now happily selling millions and millions and millions of dollars a year uh, of this simple product. But they spent 30 years knowing their customer. They spent 30 years knowing what doesn't work. They spent 30 years knowing how to describe the terms and the wording choices and all of that in their industry. And so, you know, the, their transition to e-commerce was not complicated. It was not about technology. It, it, you know, they just, just absolutely destroy it because they knew who they were serving and they knew that the product uh, need existed. Um, so I think those are those kinds of examples are very, very common for all of us when we see people really crush it and you hear, pull back the covers, you'll see, oh, they, you know, they've had experience in this industry or they, you know, they've had good solid business training before or they, you know, they failed a few times and learned through the school of hard knocks. Um, and those are how those are lessons are how we all learn our first principles, our basics. You know, it's the basic karate chop. We all have to learn uh, how to get stuff done. I think to also um, to your point, Joseph, around the, you know, you've got your 10 steps or 12 modules or whatever uh, to success. Now, having tried to create or having created a rather monstrous course for people starting from the beginning, which is no longer the people that I really serve because it's it's very hard to help people starting. Um, but one of the troubles that I understand and sympathize with is when you're trying to teach people something from scratch, you need to keep it simple. But here's the thing I would say. The, what I love about your approach, Jason, um, and you just given a great example of the, you break things down to very simple things. Okay, how do you get first principles? Identify current assumptions, break down the problem into fundamental principles, create new solutions. Now that is very simple looking, but it's a simple truth because is there's some quote by a great American whose name escapes me, but it's something like the man who follows practices is not going to succeed, and the man who follows principles is always going to, or yeah. something like that's not mm -hmm. the right quote. Mm -hmm. I don't know who it is, Jefferson or somebody along those lines. And the point is this, that if you are working from first principles, the practices you create from that will be on mm -hmm. a solid ground. So if you ignore the laws of physics, it goes wrong. <laughs> and there are certain laws of business, it turns out, and I think Jason and I really share this passion for this, that we were talking about this a few weeks ago, and we both turned out, we were both doing the same kind of nerding about this stuff. And the reason that I'm passionate about it is because exactly that thing, that it's really hard to simplify things, but it can be done if you're very mindful but as you said jason and i like that sort of reality check is that a lot of it comes from the school of hard knocks and nobody wants to sell that in a course either because that's really unpalatable but i think totally. it's the truth so when jason mentioned the karate chop it did remind me of uh of the karate kid um because in, in in the movie and this is i think the single most important lesson that comes from that movie is that he's he's he thinks he's being trained and he's being trained but he doesn't realize it he's just mm -hmm. doing unconscious muscle memory and mm -hmm. he is just painting fences and he's and he's sanding floors and he's waxing 
and, and it gets frustrated and understandably so because the the ultimate lesson is not being uh, revealed to him yet. And I also suspect that there has to be that moment of doubt in order for something to properly sink in. Like if, you, if I'm 100% uh, committed to something and I'm completely devoted and there's no skepticism whatsoever, it doesn't give me the ability to then open my mind up in such a way that the real lesson comes in. Like you have to, ha you have to reach a low before you can reach a high. And so I, I, I imagine that a lot of the people that have come to, uh, 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 to, to speak to you guys have had those issues. Like you're saying, the school of hard knocks, people have like, they failed numerous times before they finally understand it. And I, I guess the way I would like to ask this as a question is what would be, uh, what's the right way to fail? Like, how do we, how do we fail correctly? And how do we really understand the lessons so that we don't keep failing again in the same way? Oh, often and quickly, I guess, is the answer. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I always like this, um, this part of Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, where he was being interviewed by a reporter and um, her, her basic gist of her interview went along these lines. She said something like, um, um, 80% of businesses fail and you suggest people start a business. Why, why is that a good plan? Why aren't you just setting them up for, for failure? And he said, who cares? His response was who cares? And she's like, what do you mean? Who cares? All those people, they, they, they fail. And he says, if my business fails, I'll start another one. And if that one fails, I'll start another one. And he said, I just, it doesn't matter. You can fail in business as many times as you need to before you figure out how to do it right. And then you get all the benefits of business. And I just, I love that thinking. It's just like, you know, ideally we would, none of us would fail at all. We would just hit a home run first time up to the plate, but that's not reality. A lot of times we fail or what most likely happens is we'll implement a business model and we'll realize the downsides of that business model. So we got it working, but then we realize, Hey, this is just sort of like a little, you know, uh, two stroke engine that puts out like three horsepower. This is not going to get me to 200 miles an hour type thing to use a car metaphor. Um, and so you just start looking for a better business model, you know. I'd just add to that as well. It may be a sort of more moderate <laughs> version of that. I, whilst I agree it, it, entirely with what you're saying about Robert Kiyosaki's quote, he does say in Rich Dad Poor Dad, if I remember that it's better to fail before the age of 30, which puts me almost two decades beyond that age. So <laughs> if you're slightly less risk on Oops. than that, um, then a less nuclear version is Jim Collins' uh, principle from Good to Great, Great by Choice. Great by Choice, by the way, is the book to read if you're in a higher risk, high reward kind of area like uh, you know a more unstable environment like most internet-based businesses move so fast and the environment moves so fast and his principle is fire bullets then fire cannibals and he references mm -hmm. like an 18th century british sea battle where you make sure you you fire the bullet and you use a certain yeah. amount of gunpowder and metal but you you're not on the aim yet and then you try again you try again and then once you've got it in the right aim then you put your your big amount of gunpowder and your, your few but really impactful cannibals and to me that really makes a lot of sense and i think that's a less nuclear uh, version another the way of putting it is simply just try and make sure that any failures you have won't won't bankrupt you personally and or your business and the line is not that distinct because frankly if you're borrowing more than a certain amount of money it tends to be with personal loans and then your houses are at stake so i would say that that's um, a less extreme version but that that's also kind of micro failures that's when they analyzed uh, businesses that were working in very, very difficult environments like the airline industry, Microsoft versus Apple back in their comparison point. And that was a consistent theme as well. One uh, particular point that I want to raise is just the, the, the metric of, you know, try to have your failures before 30. And what I find about age-based instructions or uh, advice like that is that as generations continue to 
um, uh, unfold. I think the metrics do change. Um, I myself, I'm 30, I'm 30 right now. And uh, I've only just moved into an apartment, you know, once a, a few generations prior to that, people were uh, consistently moving into apartments or even buying homes um, much, much sooner in their lives, because uh, I think it, just, it was it was a simpler time economically. And so what I think is, is that you have, we can look at it as age and age will eventually become a significant factor. But I think it has a lot to do with what personal milestones a person has passed. Like for one, is somebody else depending on me? Like, do I have a child to raise or, or, or have my parents gone to the point where I now have to uh, be more responsible for them? Okay, now I have other people that I'm accountable to. Now it's much more difficult to fail because now the failure will not only affect me, it will affect other people. Um, so I, 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 I tend to look at it that way, but maybe that's my the, the little bit of youth I have left, I guess, uh, the, the little optimism I have left for the, uh, for the future. Sure. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, what you said is the dependency. I think it really is, comes down to what is the responsible yet courageous act given any person's personal situation. I guess the age thing, what he really probably means is you've got the energy to pick yourself up and, fa and fail again, and you don't have kids yet who are depending on you for <laughs> a wage. Having said that, traditionally, as you said, back in the day, everyone had kids at 18. I think Robert Kiyosaki did have kids, and he did sort of famously say, I think it was maybe Kiyosaki and other people who said it, like some people say, oh, I can't take a risk because i got kids. And uh, to which his response is, I'm going to take a risk because I got kids, because I want to build a future for them. So it does come down to, as you said, the relationship to these things rather than just the things themselves, really. So what I want to do is um, uh, take this uh, knowledge so far and see if we can uh, develop a, a brief but ideal uh, guide frame for uh, for my audience, many many of whom are either doing Shopify stores or they're just waiting for the last little nugget of inspiration before they get into it. So with applying the the principles, how would somebody um, correctly or as much as possible, you know, there's still plenty of lessons to learn, um, set up a Shopify store, pick a product in their niche and and get started and in, in competing in the marketplace? Yeah. Well, the microeconomic principles associated with what you just described, obviously, um, supply and demand is the most central theme in microeconomics. And um, so picking a product is really a tricky one. Now, for our personal story, for example, when we started on eBay selling, we did auctions of handmade doll clothes. Now, for those of you who are uninformed about the wide world of doll clothes, there mm -hmm. is actually a market and people actually pay a lot of money. So we could auction um, my wife's handmade items for three, four or $500. But, um, and so there was a market for that. But the problem was uh, she had to take a week or two or more to make the thing. And so we had a, an obvious market, but the supply was the problem. And so back in 2009, we shifted to publishing her uh, patterns as digitally downloadable files, PDF files. And we were experimenting whether there was a market for that. And as it happens, there's a huge market for uh, sewing patterns. Um, and so that was the shift we made in 2009. And that really set the course of our, you know, the next uh, 12 years or whatever it's been. So, uh, you know, I think, but the interesting point is this, Amazon didn't allow for selling PDF files. eBay didn't allow for selling PDF files. So if you looked on those marketplaces, you would see zero for supply or demand because they literally by their terms of service didn't permit it. So you've really got to do a deep dive in your you know, market that you want to serve, really understand what is and isn't available, uh, why it's 
not available in certain places and look for opportunity there. And, um, you know, that's that, that research, if you're new to your niche that you want to serve is imp- super important. Now, you know, the ideal scenario is you're very, very, very familiar with the niche market you want to serve so that you know these things. Uh, and so that the supply side and the demand side is something you can wrap your mind around really, really quickly and find opportunity. And you don't find that by going to Alibaba and just randomly looking around for stupid stuff. You know, you don't, you don't find it by just seeing what other people are doing successfully on Amazon and then doing a me too version of reality. Um, and so you've got to take a more thorough approach to it than that. And, you know, and so that's, I guess that's uh, sort of my advice for somebody who's just getting into it is start with something that you are incredibly knowledgeable about, passionate about, or willing to do a ton of research on or a good amount of research on to really understand the dynamics at play. Totally agree with uh, everything Jason said. I would just add to the supply and demand thing a couple of nuances. I mean, first of all, um, just echo what you were saying that I've had a couple of clients recently just getting started from scratch on Amazon with a kind of private label slash unique product play. One of whom um, within about a month decided what he was going to sell because he's a passionate consumer of a certain type of product and he has a lot of friends who will do the same thing. Another guy Frankly, I'm about to say to him, I think we should stop working together because I don't want to waste your money because he's been going around in circles for six months because he doesn't seem to have any particular passion for a particular thing or know anybody. And when I suggest to him that he talks to actual real people about the problems they're having, he's very resistant, which I get because it's hassle and you're bothering people. But the trouble is that it's really hard to develop a great product without talking to people because people are the ones who pay us at the other end of the system. Another way of putting it is every single Mm thing in the system is a cost except for the consumer <laughs> so if you don't know them and you don't respect their needs then you you're already off target at the beginning so you know it's pretty simple but the whole let's go on jungle scout thing is just a disaster please please i beg somebody if there's nothing else you take away if you're going to sell on amazon please don't just go on jungle scout because everyone else does it including the chinese you know, factories and they they do do it in small scale chinese factories don't do things at that scale they'll send 400 employees to a training day on how to hack jungle scout with the black as a black hat so that's not the way to go <laughs> um a more mm-hmm. positive note i i absolutely am passionately in love with the star principle which is richard kosher's big thing and it's basically a reiteration of the boston consulting group matrix which came back from the 60s and it simply means that you need to be in a fast growth market and be able to be the leader in the market i.e have at least twice the revenue of your nearest competitor most markets will not lend themselves to that and if you have a venn diagram overlap of um i really know and care about this market and i know people i can go and hassle and give my prototypes to and say what do you think and it, it's you know hits the star principle that's mm-hmm. not going to be much left but what's left is really promising hunting grounds. Let me just add one tiny little bit and then we'll keep, keep going. But uh, I think the solution to a lot of this problem is uh, people over uh, try to over serve too big a market. They, they try to serve too big a market. I always encourage people go smaller, go into a sub niche, go into a sub niche of a sub niche, go into a market that is so darn boring. No one is interested in being a successful marketer in that space because it's just too niche. And uh, that's, I think, part of the solution is really getting into something that is uh, where you can actually be uh, the, you know, dominant player in a very, very small space. Uh, And and that's a that's just a general principle that I think is very um, effective for a lot of people. There was one question that I wanted to uh, ask you earlier. Um, There's one thing I was interested in knowing about with the uh, with the clothing for, for dolls, which was 
I had always thought that if I'm making something that takes a lot more labor uh, and mm-hmm. it's more of a, I was thinking like a more of like a boutique or more of a premium. There's like there's a, there's a very specific word that I would want to use for it, but I can't find it right now, so uh, I'll just move on from that. But I had figured that. What you're doing in order to make sure that it's worth the time is that you would increase the cost to reflect how much time it make it takes to make something. Um, so you know, at, at the very least, compensated for for hours worked. So what I was wondering is, was there a limit to how much people were willing to pay, but it didn't pos- it didn't reflect the amount of time it took to continue making the material? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, you know, there are uh, doll cl- one off doll clothes. Uh, custom designers and makers who have sold items into the thousands of dollars. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, so so the the top end is TBD. I guess it depends on who makes it and who's the customer. You know, I mean, you, you think about literally British royalty who has a, a six or seven or eight year old daughter. What would they pay for a custom toy for their, you know, for their daughter or you know, Hollywood celebrities? The price is not the issue. So but but that doesn't mean that the this, on the supply side, it makes the system of making it any more simple. So for all those reasons, we thought, nah, we would rather pivot out of it into digital goods, which has uh, amazing properties, near zero marginal cost uh, being the most powerful concept for digital goods. Um, and uh, so, so you know, that was our choice back in 2009, and, and it's served us really well. Yeah. I, I do have to wonder, uh, and not just with the royalty in the UK, but royalty in general, is if the if the princess would have a doll or if she would just be allowed to like hire human beings to play the role of the dolls instead. And just, I'm pretty yeah. sure they have dolls. But okay. If I had to choose guys, since you mentioned British royalty, um, I would definitely go for celebrities. They, they seem to spend very freely and very unwisely that mm. the British royalty has always got the media looking at them and they're actually kind of quite sensible in a weird kind of way. If having a billion pound uh, palace can be said to be sensible. Um, <laughs> so I, I would sell to the celebrities just so you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wanted to expand the question now because I didn't want to go after, uh, yeah. uh, go after after the, the, the UK royalty in specific. Um, so Michael, I got, I, I got a question for you with the with your client who you're uh, on, on the verge of uh, letting go. It sounds like he your client is, is missing some key motivation or some key understanding that is costing him his ability to, to do something significant in the space. And you know, everybody that I talk to, um, even even if somebody is, let's just say, you know, they they, they drop ship something that is, uh, uh, you know, ben- beneficial but not exactly world breaking, they still want to contribute to the net good with their content. They still want to help other people because you never know who you're helping. Some people can really use this this market to get out of a rut. And I've talked to people who use this to get out of ruts, and they've uh, improved their lives. They've helped their parents out, um, and it's and it's inspirational. It sounds to me, and I'm not an expert on this, this is just the best that I can do under the circumstances, that he's missing the motivation to do something good for other people. Like he's missing the motivation to do favors. Am I am I close? Is is there like, what is his motivation to get into uh, e-commerce in the first place? That's a very good question. I, I guess really I would say that for me... This is more about coaching than e-commerce, but it's kind of the same thing. It comes to the motivation question and who should be doing this and who shouldn't. And I don't get to decide who should and shouldn't do things with their life. It would be incredibly arrogant of me. But what I do know is who I believe will succeed in a business model based on my experience and who I think I can help, which is a much narrower and easier question. And I think for me, it's kind of a failure as a coach uh, slash as a, an educator 
to not have put across somehow through the hundreds and hundreds of podcast episodes I've done for, for newbies on Amazon, which I'm now stepping away from, I somehow haven't got across the fact that you really need to care about something. And um, I've tried to do that. I've had guests on who talked about it. I've had guests who've built and sold businesses who clearly care about that stuff, like Ben Leonard, who I've had on recently, um, who sold a seven-figure business within two and a half years of creating it. Why? Because he was very, very passionate about the area, I think, partly, partly luck, partly yeah. timing. And somehow I haven't communicated that. So that was an educational fail. And I also didn't, as a coach, manage to filter him out through the the application and 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 um, interview process and say, you know, maybe you're not the right person for this. To be fair, it's one of those things you can't really find out whether something's for you or not, to Jason's point earlier, without the school of hard knocks. The school of hard knocks of not even starting is even a school of yeah. not so much hard knocks as just boredom and frustration and going around in circles looking at spreadsheets all day. That's kind of been part of my experience of entrepreneurship as well, is that that going in circles in the wilderness for years. Jason, I know you've, you've had your version of that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe yeah. he had to try this for six months on paper to discover it wasn't for him. And that's maybe okay, man. That's a use of time that was valid. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to chime in on that a little bit. I, I spent 10 years not knowing what to sell online. I heard about a guy making $1,000 a day in 1998. On, you know, on the internet, he had a traffic school website he had set up and it was one of the first traffic school websites on the internet. And, um, I talked to him, he needed data entry help for a couple hours a week and I didn't work with him, but, but the idea of a thousand dollars a day on the internet just was like baked into my brain. Well, for 10 years, I poked around in the evenings and weekends, trying to understand what to do, how to do it. I, I, I made no progress. Um, and then, but ultimately what happened was I saw my wife doing something at such extraordinary level that I thought there's an opportunity to be the marketer for her. And so, and so I would just suggest to anybody who's in a stuck position like that, that just literally cannot, um, think of something, maybe, maybe they're a brilliant technical marketer, but they're not a product creator. So I would encourage them to go find a partner or go be a marketer for somebody else's product and serve them for a couple of years and learn through their passion for an industry, for a niche, for a customer, because you don't know why they're not succeeding. Like for that 10 year period. Um, I mean, I, I have an MBA. I mean, I, I wanted to do it. I was interested in the topic. I just literally couldn't think of a product to, to take to market. And so, you know, I mean, there's, there's a million reasons why it won't work sometimes, but I think, the kernel of the idea is that a confused mind always says no or go slow. And if you have somebody going super slow, they're confused and you have to figure out how to help them get unconfused without judgment. I mean, without, you know, I mean, without psychoanalyzing, none of us are psychologists, but I think, you know, sometimes having a collaborator or a partner is a great tool to help people go forward. And just on that point and to sort of out myself, if you like, I'm not a very product centered person. And the way that I've ended up collaborating because my wife doesn't happen to create physical products is because is to end up um, working, for example, I've got some clients, I've got a client who's heading for somewhere over $10 million a year um, in revenue. And they're very, very good at operations and they're good at creating products and in, importing them, which is all mental hernia to me. I can do it, I can teach it, um, but I don't enjoy it. And um, whereas their optimization to that point 
is actually amazingly wide open. I looked at this stuff. They got basically, not to reveal too much, they got a bunch of kitchen products, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of private label products, nearly all of them on just plain white background. So I'm like, dude, I could so improve the optimization of this and get you a return on the investment very straightforwardly. So now I've said that, I've got to go and implement that for 100 SKUs for her and then learn the lessons and teach that. But that's an example of where I, I now own the fact that I love marketing, I love strategy above all, and I don't particularly love the the process of creating physical products or importing them, and that's okay. And I've finally come to terms with that. So you don't even have to do it within your own business. In the end, what I think is fairly straightforward as a first principle, which is you have to add value to the marketplace. If you put a Me Too product out there, even though it costs you a lot of sweat and time and money to put it out there, you haven't added any value because you're just putting more of the same out there. So you'll get paid the same, which means no profit. And Wherever you can add value, if you add extreme amounts of value, just do that thing, you know, and it may not be creating a product to your point. You know, even in having this conversation uh, with the two of you, it, I was thinking about my own uh, Shopify store. Uh, I didn't have one before getting uh, into uh, e-commerce. This podcast has been my entry into it. But after talking to uh, so many people, it's hard not to be inspired and motivated and a little jealous, but mostly inspired. (laughs) And the the product that I'm working on, and I'm happy to be open about it, is these drawers that you stick to underneath the desk so that it's adhesive, right? You pull it out, oh, I got a new drawer. And and, and that's the product, but... I mean, there's only so much passion that I have for a drawer that you can uh, stick underneath the desk. But the real passion behind it for me is the ability to rethink my space and how can I use every square inch, whether it's floor, wall, ceiling, or sky, how can I use this to optimize my space? And so I, in uh, this being a video show, I'm going to take full advantage of it, but I have numerous wall hooks all along my wall. Uh, where I hang up headphones and, and coats. Uh, and uh, if, if it wasn't so far away, I would show you guys the drywall that I ripped off because I didn't know how to remove them properly. And, and that's the part that I am really passionate about is I love the idea that my wall is a floor that I can't stand on. There are so many things that I can do with it if I just think creatively, if I just think outside the box. And, and that, I think, to me, is the fundamental and is the principle that I would want people to think about when they're selling their product, too. It's like, what is the, the psycho, like, what is the problem beneath the problem? What is the incentive and the inspiration that I want to leave people with to see their home in a new way? Yeah. I love that. By the way, I want to just say that I'm not passionate about creating those products, but I'm a passionate needer of those. And I'm looking around in a small flat in London and absolutely my wall like is is covered. I won't won't do the disservice to show you. (laughs) I've put up these, for example, electrostatic whiteboards that stick um, stick to the wall, but not with adhesive. That's a genius invention because suddenly I've got a whiteboard space. As you say, I've got walls. I don't really have any floor space. We're, we're stacked to the gunnels. But that's something I feel passionate about, but as a consumer. So there is an unmatching passion for the problem, the, which reminds me of the phrase, love the problem. In others, people get obsessed mm-hmm. with products. Mm-hmm. I think if you obsess about yeah. problems and really fall in love with constantly scratching that itch, that that's really a key. And I think you put your finger on it very well. Yeah. Excellent. Well, well I, I, not without the help of the both of you. So for that, I say thanks. I had another question. This isn't uh, about uh, about the principles. Um, so before I move out of that, did anybody have any final points that I wanted to raise about economics principles first, just in case there was any like key point I forgot to ask about? No, I mean, I think it's just a, I would encourage everybody to go deep, deep into that idea. Go, okay. Go study yourself. Yeah. So with the, um, with the thread of like, what are, uh, what are fundamentals um, beneath? I want to keep that in mind with this next question. So 
One of the points that uh, you had raised on your podcast that I had listened to was about how a lot of the times markets end up as a monopoly or a duopoly. Mm -hmm. So can you, uh, just, just so that I don't have to like um, uh, butcher it, can you just uh, run through what was the, uh, the, the, pr the premise here and then I'll ask my question? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I think all of us probably are aware of the fact that online businesses tend to run towards winner-take-all situations. I, it it happens online very, very frequently. It's like the internet wants to make winners in product categories. And the, that happens because when you get ranked, you know, by any sorting metric, other sorting metrics rank you, uh, you know, and categorize you. And it's a snowball effect. Um, you know, we have clients who um, are number one in Amazon for their key phrase or, or keyword, and they get a ton of traffic from off Amazon, from bloggers and people who will be like, hey, there's, you know, six, the, the six best, best products in this category, that category. And they all just compoundingly link to uh, the winners. And so this whole idea of uh, winner take all market opportunities is true. And, and this is the important part. It's true at every level of the internet because the way that system works applies to the smallest of weird little niches, just the same as it applies to coffee <laughs> or laptops, you know? Uh, and so I think that's just the basic of the idea. And what it means is you want to put yourself in a position to be number one in your category, even if your category is tiny um, and start to learn the lessons of a niche that's uh, a, a dominated niche by an industry leader or uh, find a niche that's not dominated and work to install yourself as the winner. Yeah. The only thing I would say to that, and I could agree with every word you said, is that actually I think it's bigger than the internet. There was a study in the 60s, which was before ARPANET even really existed. And even then they found that pretty much all markets tend towards monopoly. I think what happens on the internet is it accelerates and intensifies it. I think I see this as extremely uh, intense on Amazon. So I think you have to respect that reality that if there's the, the classic uh, problem that people fall into, particularly when they're new, but not only then, is that you get excited by the size of a market or the TAM, the total adjustable market. That's really totally irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what you can take. And to the point of the star principle, being the number two in a market sounds like a great idea if you're making X amount of money where X feels like a lot to you. But if you're not the dominant player, you don't get the economies of scale. You don't get to set the prices. You don't get to define the, you know, if I'm selling an iPhone and I want to sell a Samsung, okay, iPhone's defined what a good smartphone equals. Now I have to be different from or better than, but I can't just be my own thing. And therefore, um, I think we have to respect the, the nature of the monopolized, the monopolistic nature, and therefore just stay away from most markets, quite simply. And what a lot of people don't understand when you're not the leader in your category is that when as new people come in, basically think of it like this way. If you're the market leader, your job is to grow the overall market. And when new entrants come in, they will receive an ever decreasing fraction of the total addressable market. And so even if let's say there's five players in your space right now, and you're the dominant one, the others will receive smaller fractions as you go down from the second place, third place, fourth place. But imagine if you have a hundred players in your space, each of them will receive an even smaller fraction of the incremental sales that occur. And so as the market leader, even as something goes larger, 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 which is your job to, you know, basically promote the category or the topic, uh, you are the, you're the de facto winner. And in, 
entrance become less, it becomes less and less appealing for entrance. The more there are, the worse their economics all get. Um, and their marketing, their energy, their enthusiasm for the topic will accrete to you. It, it will roll to you as the market leader. And those dynamics are very fascinating to, uh, to think through. Anyway. Yeah. Well, well, the part of it that I was struck by the most was when you had then referred to that if it's not a monopoly, it ends up being a duopoly. And then you and you pointed out the competition yeah. between, say, uh, Apple and everybody else, which I would say is spearheaded by Samsung. So I guess I could say Apple versus Samsung, but even that isn't uh, telling the full story. And the reason why it, it stuck out to me is because while um, monopoly is often the result of, uh, of market uh, and, and commerce, I think duopoly is the result of just the human condition or just our understanding of the universe at large because uh, we can break down a number of things some of which i won't say out loud because some are controversial but many things can be broken down into this or that uh you have light and you have dark you have mm -hmm. life you have yeah. death you have start you have stop i what my position is and i wanted to hear if you guys think uh there there's likes to this or if you disagree explain why is that i think duopoly is the ideal um, market structure because it's the closest one to our ability to function as humans. Um, you have a, you have two party systems in a lot of in in the United States. You have uh, you have Coke versus Pepsi. You have our our you, you, you. I mean, yeah, I guess there's like the amber light, but for the most part, it's red light, it's green light. So I think our ability to understand things as humans is uh, characterized by our ability to put things into this or that. Well, the winner will always have people who hate their service or product. Right. So where do those people go? Yeah. So, so success breeds like complainers, you know, like there's just going to be people who are unhappy with whatever you've done, whether it's a service or a, a product. And so it does set the stage for a, a dominant second position. Um, from there, it breaks into a million shards and, you know, it falls apart beyond that. Our recent track trout did the seminal work in this regard in terms of marketing, um, marketing warfare is their book and their basic commentary is be the category leader or create a new category. Yeah. And those are your two choices. Um, and that logic has been applied in business over and over and over again in all, all disciplines. And um, I think it's sound thinking. To that point, I think that I'm glad you mentioned the creating a new category thing, because I think that's actually the key often for a star business. And Richard Koch, by the way, just to, just to put why I think Richard Koch is a god amongst men, because first of all, he's a consultant. And then he retired from that in his 50s, whatever, with a few million pounds and turned that into, I think he's worth like somewhere in a sort of fractional billionaire, 300 billion million dollars or something from his own investments. So he followed his own advice, which is pretty rare. <laughs> the second thing is out of 16 investments you had last night, I heard eight had a positive return. No venture capital gets close. The average average good venture capitalist with experience in battle scars, one in 10. So the, the guy is a legend. And what he did, for example, his first big investment was in Betfair. And Betfair was in the gambling category. They created an online version of it. So it's not a neatly e-commerce example, but at least it's internet-based. And um, this created a new niche. And the definition of when is something a new niche is a really critical one. It's quite subtle, but he gives a few hints. For example, you've got different consumers, different competitors. So for a while, they didn't really have any direct competitors because if you've ever been in a betting shop in the UK, there's sort of, it used to be people full of very old men smoking roll-ups and it was kind of a sad place. Whereas online at home, it was a different experience and they turned out they didn't have any direct competition. So he invested a million pounds or 1.5 million bucks, didn't need to invest anymore. That turned into 100 million pounds because they created a category and then dominated it. And of course, other competitors have come in and to your point, you're always going to have the culture and the counterculture. But even a so-called duopoly is normally 
there's normally one person who's winning a lot better than others. For example, with party political systems, without getting, I'm not interested in the allegiance to this, but in the UK system, like the Labour Party is the kind of, you know, the, the second party in the Tories, I guess, or the Conservative Party or the, the sort of party currently of government. But if you actually look at, look at the statistics, Labour Party has been around for about a century. They haven't been in power for a great deal of that. So actually, if you're looking at the monopolistic nature of the UK government, it's mostly Conservative with certain variety of Labour just every so often. So even a duopoly isn't normally an equal thing. Um, so the dynamics of these things are very interesting. But I think the key is just to be creating a new category or, or breaking off a version such that it could become is a really super powerful thing. And to some extent, I think, you know, Pixie Fair is a really great example of that. It's not a new category, but you dominated it. You've consolidated it. You created a home for those consumers in a way that possibly didn't exist before. And and, and that's a, a, a very important point. And so even if I relate that back to um, a, a lot of uh, fundamental uh, human or universal understandings, when you just look at life and death, well, life is far more the winning side of this because we we all of our experience is based on life and death is something that well i mean it happens and it's something that we're aware of but it's it certainly doesn't uh, influence us to the same level that life is influencing us because we're living it in each moment that's something that i'm going to want to like think about for hours and hours and hours as i lay awake unable to fall asleep is like how do these different competing sides actually end up holding their own market share of the universe. So that's something I'm just going to take away. Uh, and, I, and I will say too, um, just to compare how uh, politics are in Canada, and I, and I don't want to like go down this rabbit hole because we're almost out of time anyways, but just as a statement of fact and observation is that I, I, I believe that Canada is dominantly a, is a, is a left-leaning country. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a liberal-minded country. And so I would say that the liberal party here is more the dominant party, uh, whereas the conservative is more like the, the counter uh, country. And a lot of it just has to do with, I think, the mindset. You know, this is a rather progressive country in a lot of ways. We have a lot of progressive pockets, not throughout the whole country, but it, when just taking what you're saying and thinking about it myself is that, yeah, we, there, there is a dominant party here, even if they're not always in power. Yeah, um, politics is a dirty game. Yeah, back to e-commerce. E yeah. yeah, back, back to the plot. <laughs> yeah, we're all sitting there going, oh, Fair politics, enough. scary. <laughs> I hate politics. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, okay, fair, fair, fair enough. I, but uh, I, I just thought that was worth observing. So I will uh, put, a, put a pin in that before that thing blows up. So uh, here's another one, another tidbit I wanted to share with our audience that you guys talk about on your show. Uh, it was the difference between tribe versus community. And I've, yeah, I've heard people say to me before, you know, find your tribe, find your tribe. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. What's a tribe exactly? And what, how do, how, when is it, when is it a tribe and when is it a community? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and I think the main takeaway from that whole conversation is to get clear on um, the, the opportunity you have to bond with people and your customers um, and whether or not. Yeah, that that is existing with or without you and how you partner or participate in that situation. And, um, you know, there are a lot of online communities, for example, that have sprung up over the last 30 years for niches or industries or topics, you know, there's a million of them. Uh, and, and uh, th that's one thing. Um, and understanding who the community leaders are and, you know, who's sort of uh, thought leaders in the space. Um, and, and I think that's different than understanding your true fans or you're like a lot, you know, the famous article about find your, you know, 1000 true fans. Um, and, and I think it's important to think through the difference between those two things. Um, and if you co-opt a community uh, and they support you, that's fine. Just realize they can just as quickly disown you. 
uh, or own someone else as their solution to their problems. And whereas a tribe or, you know, a thousand true fans would be people who are passionate about your implementation of, you know, the product or, you know, your solution that you're offering. I think there's nuance there between the two, you know. I really love this distinction. Like every time I get on the podcast with Jason, it's one reason I do it is because he comes up with something I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Um, this makes me think, for example, I'm an avid Apple user, but I'm not an Apple fanboy to the extent that I'm going to go and queue up in the rain. There are certain people who will always forever buy mm -hmm. Apple products. I am not one of those people. I'm one of those people that's sort of artistic, creative type, and I've got musician friends and, and photographer friends, which is very useful in e-commerce. And um, they tend to own Macs. And I guess I, I've got it for that reason. I mostly got it because I was sick of PCs. So it's more a reaction against, it was almost a countercultural thing. I want something that works. Yeah. But I will throw it out of the window with swearing yeah. and get another thing if it's if it keeps to misbehaving. Like my current iMac is not behaving the way it should. The flip side also to, to your point there, Jason, that you can disown <laughs> uh, you know, a, a community as distinct from a tribe of fans. I think if you're, if you're making that distinction, if I've got it, if the language about right can not only disown yeah. you, but I think yeah. that the flip side of love is not disinterest, it's, it's hate. I, I get passionately angry with stuff that I paid a lot of money and that I have great faith in the brand mm -hmm. and it lets me down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that For happens sure. with cars. Like my dad used to own a BMW, which is famously pretty reliable. And, and these days, apparently they break down a lot and they've got electronics. I don't personally know because I don't own a car because I've lived in central London. But, um, you know, with my Mac is a classic case in point that I get very, very angry to an extent that I didn't with the PC. I got frustrated, but I kind of thought, well, this is a piece of junk. I kind of expect it. So there's also the, there's another nasty nuance that if you're going to make people passionate about your brand, you better serve them well, particularly if you're premium, because the expectations are really high. One thing I'd like to add on to that, too, is that when uh, someone who is uh, that passionate and they enter that mindset where their uh, their love has now converted into an equal amount of hate is for uh, for a marketer or just for the business that is an opportunity to then turn that hate into an even deeper even more passionate love if they are if you're willing to pull them out of that so one, one example for me is when uh, I'm, I'm a lifelong nintendo fan and i uh <laughs> the 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 previous console generation it was this tablet that would uh, plug into the into the device and i didn't use it all that much and then i tried charging it in and then all of a sudden it just it just bricked and so i called the nintendo and says listen guys I, I barely use this and all of a sudden it bricks and he says yeah you are like a few days past the warranty and i'm like oh, okay now i'm getting really ticked off here <laughs> but but i explained to them I, I came from a place of, you know, I, I've been a fan of my whole life. I, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've always loved Nintendo and I, I just, this, this, and, and they can tell, they can tell that I'm honest in, in my inflection and say, okay, just, uh, just, just mail it in and we'll, uh, we'll fix that right up. Uh, and then another time I, I dropped one of my devices, it smashed and, uh, and, and they had shipped me a new one um, afterwards, uh, basically at cost. So it didn't, it didn't have to buy like a whole brand new one. So like there was a moment where I was going to be really, really, really disgruntled and I was going to uh, express that and it was going to cost. And, they, and I think they, they understand that they understand that when people are passionate and they want to, and they have access to social media, I, all, all 15 followers on my personal YouTube channel, we're going to, we're going to hear about this. That can cause a lot of damage. So we understand that, okay, here's a, here's a market opportunity. Let's see if we can, pull them out of that that dark moment and get them into an even brighter spot than they were before.
It's absolutely true. And the classic case on Amazon, which is kind of so primitive and obvious that it shouldn't need saying, but people still need to say hear it sometimes, it seems, is very simply that if somebody gives you a one-star review, and of course, Amazon makes it incredibly difficult to find who it is, but if you can do that um, through various means of diligence, then and and turn it around, give them a new product, refund, be profoundly apologetic, and even send them a card in the post that says that, then um, you often will get it turned into a five-star review. But even if you don't, and this is the thing that we need to just be broader-minded about, the word of mouth, I swear that they'll be talking about it to somebody if you give them an exceptional experience, even if they don't bother to get down to updating your, your listing. Now, of course, they've dinged your conversion rate, which makes the economics of that product worse. So it matters, but still, we got to do everything we can. We got to really stand behind that that promise that we made to a community. And I think, to your point, Jason, that I think um, in the end, and this sort of ties in with what we were saying about somebody finding something that matters to them. I think we got to do stuff that matters to us. I think if you don't do that, in the end, with a sort of millennial-driven consumer base now, um, now that they're out, outnumbering the baby boomers, and by definition, we'll do more over the years to come. We can't afford to be anything less than engaged because it's kind of almost dangerous to be half-hearted now. Well, well, yeah. Uh, sp- speaking as the uh, the millennial out of the three of us, uh, I there there yeah, I can I can definitely uh, attest to if I were uh, an unhappy, I would have I think seven or eight different uh, channels, both on social media, different WhatsApp groups. Uh, call my mom. There's a lot of things that I can do to to cause damage. <laughs> All right, uh, gents. So um, I got one one more question that I want to ask you, and then I'll let you uh, let you both go. And and this one is some is a thread that I have been working on in a lot of the conversations that I've been having with people. Um, so it's not specifically to do with uh, content that I picked up from you guys. It's just more of like something that I want to get your take on. And it has to do, and actually, a lot it ties into a lot of what we've just been talking about. So one of the, I guess the promotional term is one of the things you hear about in the e-commerce space is, you know, be your own boss or, you know, don't, you know, get, uh, if they want to be cynical about it, they say fire your boss. I'm like, you know, okay, you don't have to go that far. But here's where I've had an issue with it, which is that I think as long as we are in the interest of trying to make money, someone is our boss. And sometimes it's just one person that is uh, paying us. Sometimes it's like when I was freelancing, it was like several bosses. So that one pressure from one person is now disseminated across seven people or or how many clients I had at the time. But when we're running a store, we still have bosses. We just have thousands and not tens of thousands and not hundreds of thousands of them. So now the pressure from one person is now spread out over many, 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 many people. And what I, I just wanted to hear your take on that is like, is... It, it, where am I? Where is my logic? Maybe not quite ch- chalking up, or do you dis- do you agree? Do you disagree? Overall, I d- the, the fundamental point is we are always working for somebody, regardless if it's one person or a thousand. Yeah. Um, well, I was a in my olden days uh, when I was a nine to five guy. I was a human resources guy for half my career, and then um, and, and and then ultimately I was in charge of all human resources. And so, I do take your point about the customer in essence being a form of boss, but, but there's, you know, parsing it out a bit, uh, what a boss literally has is higher fire authority over you right. <laughs> and customers do not have that. So, you know, there, there is a difference now, you know, we, I, I went full time with our, our business on January 1st, 2014. And it was the day I ended my, uh, you know, nine to five career, but now I work 24, seven, 365 
on a whole bunch of projects all the time. And uh, although technically I don't have a boss, I'm in a 50-50 partnership with my wife, really in support of her business. She, you know, and so uh, <laughs> she, there's this funny sign I saw one time on the show Gold Rush Alaska, and it was over this guy's desk. Tony Beats is the guy, he's a real character. And uh, the sign over it said, I'm the CEO because she said I could be. And, you know, so the, that's sort of a fun jab at just the reality that, um, you know, we do all have bosses to some degree, but when you are the CEO of your own company or owner of your own company, you really have removed a lot of the controls over just the top level choices that can or can't be made. Uh, and, um, and, and so there's huge, you know, comfort in that. If you can make it work on your own, I think you realize over time, wow. I've liberated myself from having that type of control or pressure on my life. Uh, and it's, uh, it's why people go into business frequently. And it's a incredibly valuable uh, part of being a business owner is the sense of control. Yeah. So I've got to take on this as well. I'm not, uh, we're always working for somebody was your kind of discuss point and like the British essay style would be, in the, you know, we're always working for somebody <laughs> discuss first thing, be your own boss. In my case, that's a mixed blessing because I'm often working for an idiot who is very ambitious <laughs> indeed for his workers, i.e. me and my you know, <laughs> VAs in the Philippines, who sets ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous workloads. My workload for a day normally is actually a pretty full week. And I know this of myself and I try to back off it. So working for yourself is a, a mixed blessing depending who you are and how good you are at project management and people management. You're right? a bad boss to yourself. I'm a saying? bad boss to myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, when I'm within a, a sort of structure of a company or, or an organization, then that's mitigated by other people saying, like, you know, we're not going to actually achieve, you know, this project in a week It's going to be 10 weeks. And I go, oh yeah. Okay. So I think the first thing is if you're your own boss, you need to get two things i think to to counterbalance that <laughs> insanity that can descend for the very ambitious person which i certainly <laughs> would count myself as number one get a coach because you need some outside head particularly if you don't have a business partner and number two get into a mastermind of your peers because they'll be going through the same stuff and they could give a bit of reaction to when you propose something and everyone goes dude that's never going to happen that time sorry then maybe they're right <laughs> so that's the first reflection the second one though maybe to make it to, to think about the orientation to it in a bit more of a generous mindset, the whole idea of not working for somebody as a desirable concept in an interesting one. So it reminds me of the Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People Continuum. He talks about dependence, independence, interdependence. For me, this really ties in with the things you've just referenced. So dependence, being an employee, if your boss dis dislikes you, they fire you, you're dependent on their opinion. And that leads to certain behaviors, some not so good. The second one is independence, the freelancer mentality, which was kind of, I'm still trying to wean myself off. And my, my wife has that. So we're both were freelance musicians in London. Um, independence is so, so important to those people. And, and, and Robert Kiyosaki talks about this in his little diagram, doesn't he? The, 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 four, the, the quadrant. Um, and then interdependence is more of a feeling of like we, we depend on other people. I, I can't make anything happen without guys in China, without um, people um, who, who are doing photography, without Amazon fulfilling stuff for me. I don't even want to be the guy fulfilling stuff. Why would I want to be, you know, a solopreneur in the end? That's a miserable existence. So that changes. Maybe I would just wanted to come to the end and say, we could change the language and saying, instead of saying we're always working for someone, you could say we're always serving someone. We could be serving them unwillingly if they're telling us to do stuff we don't want to do. And I do I want to get up in the middle of the night and deal with some crisis? Not really. But is it important? Is it part of my service to people? Well, okay, if I see it that way, 
it's a different mentality, it's a different feel of it. And I think that in the end, we have to be humble enough to say, well, we're kind of going to get paid for serving people, but we should have the mentality of serving without getting paid anyway. That to that the point of I forget who it is who said it, but the idea of being the, you know, sort of the uh, person who takes care of the clients or the consumers before they spend any money with us, that we have that mentality. And if we can try and develop that, I think it changes things, less of a burden. I, I think your point about interdependence is uh, one major takeaway for sure, is that no one is going to um, survive, thrive, or flourish in business without um, other people. The The idea that like a, a lot of my ability to succeed with my own store is dependent on uh, a country very, very, very far away from here is is one thing that I mean, it's been true. It's been true all this time. And yet uh, this is really probably the first time that it's really uh, sunk in. So uh, that to me is like my 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 major takeaway. And with that, I'm going to uh, let both of you. Uh, I, I almost don't want to let you guys go, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to. So um, let the audience know how they can uh, check out your content. And if they want to reach out to uh, either of you individually or as a collective or however, however uh, you, you two prefer to do this, uh, by all means, let us know. Yeah, the simplest thing to do is the ecommerceleader.com uh, is the, uh, the website for our podcast, which is called the e-commerce leader. And happy to have people check it out. It's uh, an honor to be, uh, you know, in conversation with Michael. And we do uh, a conversational podcast on topics. We don't do interviews, I guess. So that is just sort of a different style of podcast. And we have a great time with it. We try to do deep dive. We're currently running down that track, as we talked about, of uh, e-commerce first principles. But we've got a, a couple of years track record now of uh, putting out a lot of great content. And uh, so people could check that out. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, to, to Jason's point, um, we can uh, be found on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And uh, what's nice is that I get feedback from some really bright guys who are listening and, and enjoy the content. So it's not a huge audience, but I think the quality of the ones that I stumble across is is really good. So we're reaching the people that I guess we intended to reach with the kind of message we wanted to get out there. Uh, I guess the other thing to say about it is we tend to dwell on and start from sort of 50,000 foot view concepts rather than being very tactical oriented because there's so much of that out there that I guess we didn't feel we were needed to add that. Um, so the sort of just topics we talked about today is kind of quite typical of the sort of thing you would get if you listened as well. Um, in terms of getting hold of me, I guess we ought to also mention that we we, we do work separately um, as consultants. So for me, the best thing I offer at the moment is probably the AmazonMastermind.com, which is a, a small group intensive work with uh, six and seven figure Amazon sellers, many of whom also develop in their own Shopify stores as well. And um, that's been very successful about three and a half years. So that's, that's the thing to check out for people at that stage. Uh, Jason, do you want to tee up um, oh, winning, winning on Shopify? On, yeah, winningonshopify.com is our, uh, is our uh, coaching uh, site and for blogging, I have a business partner, Kyle Hamer, and I. He focuses on Amazon sellers, and I focus on Shopify sellers. And uh, together, we do our coaching. Yeah, it's a fun, fun, fun job. Well, I I, I enjoyed listening to your podcast. I myself, as I've established uh, numerous times, is I'm a big fan of fundamentals. Uh, I think it's really important to get the fundamentals right before uh, you move into the tactics and move into the strategy because you can learn the strategy, but if you don't know why they work, then it, it won't, it's just not going to, it's just not going to matter. So uh, with that, uh, thank you to both of you for, for being here. This has been a lot of fun and I really appreciate uh, both your time. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Excellent. All right, listeners, uh, I think you all know what to do. And if you don't go and listen to um, many, many more episodes, both for myself and our, our guests here, and as well as uh, all, all of the guests, uh, everybody has something important to say. And I think each and every one contributes a really important piece of the puzzle. So uh, go off and, and put your puzzle together. Take care. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>